This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 176. And the quote of the day is from Charles Darwin, who said, It is not the strongest or the most intelligent who will survive, but those who can best manage change. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers and industry professionals. Information, education, and motivation for drumming. Hey, hey, what's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here. Got another session of the Drummer's Resource Podcast. And if this is your first time checking it out, you can listen to all 176 episodes at drummersresource.com. You can also download them directly to any device. And you can get the latest 50 on iTunes, Stitcher, all that sort of stuff. And while you're on drummersresource.com, be sure to grab a copy of my ebook, Stick Control Variations. You can grab it 100% free. And just by joining the the email list, and it is 11 creative exercises that will help you with your groove, your independence, your chops, your speed, all that stick control variations free at drummersresource.com. So how's everybody doing? I hope everybody's in a good mood. I hope you're having a fantastic Monday or whatever day you're listening to this. Uh, you do listen to these as soon as they come out, right? You guys are all like sitting by the by the computer waiting. I don't know. At least I like to think that. Anyway, uh, yeah, I, mean, I hope I hope everybody's doing wonderful, and I am just really, really in a good mood. So uh, I'm passing it on to you guys. I hope everything is fantastic in your world. And let's get into this interview with Rob Wallace. So Rob is the founder of the old school DCI VHS videos that you remember seeing. And he has gone on to form Hudson Music and he's worked with Warner Brothers and all of these other great companies. And his story is amazing. He's been in the percussion industry for 30 some years and has not only some great stories, but has put out some really great educational products. Like one of my favorite DCI videos of all time was the Carter Beaufort under the table and drumming. And we talk about that a little bit in the interview. And I watched that thing that it, it broke I watched it so many times, it was a VHS, and it broke, and I had to buy another one, and that one broke again. So really, really excited to have Rob on the show because he has so many so many insights and so many cool stories and so many things that he's done and so many people that he knows in the percussion industry. So it's an absolute pleasure to have him. So without further ado, let's get into it with Rob Wallace. Rob, how are you? Thank you so much for doing this. Hey, Nick, my pleasure. How you doing? Uh, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I'm glad that we got to connect on this. There was some, some construction going on. There's been construction going on outside of my place for three years now. So they just they build one house, and then they build the next one, then they do the next one. Like, they're gutting them. So not that the listeners care about the construction on my street, but, like, it's <laughs> – I've, I've had to cancel more times than, than I'd like to admit because of, uh, because of construction. <laughs> good old sound yeah so um be, there's i'm sure there's a lot of listeners who know who you are and if they don't know who you are they know about the things that you've done in the industry but just to build a little bit of context can can you just give a brief uh a story of, of background about you and who you are and what you do sure um i grew up playing drums you know since a really young age um Loved music and loved drumming. And, you know, as I got older, I saw there was some, you know, some opportunities. Um, in 1978, 
78 when I graduated. I graduated college in 77 and 78. I started working for Sam Ash. It was the kind of the one job I've had in my life that wasn't working for my, you know, myself, one of mm-hmm. my own companies. And um, I worked at Ash, wanted to meet some musicians so I could do some playing because I went to college in Florida. So I came back to New York, didn't know anybody. And um, started working in the Manhattan store. And then I started hearing about a place called Drummer's Collective. And it was a, a you know, very underground kind of place at that point. So I walked over. I liked what I saw and started studying there. And a short while later, I became friends with uh, one of the guys that was working at the desk. And um, one day we were out for lunch and he said, you know, don't tell anybody, but, you know, Rick Kravitz, the original owner, uh, wants to move back to Boston and he wants to sell Drummers Collective. I said, that's interesting. You know, I've got about, you know, $25 to my name. And uh, (laughs) at that point, you know, I was trying to scrape together gigs and everything. And he said, well, let, you know, let's talk to him. My, my wife happened to be sitting there. She said, you guys should buy it. You know, I said, you know, I'm 24 years old, maybe 25 years old at the time. I said, well, what do I know about running a business? You know, I'm, I want to play drums. One thing led to another. And we ended up buying the collective pretty much, you know, for the cost of the instruments that, that we got from Rick. Mm-hmm. And um, borrowed, you know, a few dollars from my parents and um and Paul Siegel, my partner, did the same thing on his side because he was drumming and, and he was working in the office to pay for his, his lessons. And uh, all of a sudden, I went to the city one day and I owned a small business in Manhattan. So nice. I kind of looked around. I had no idea what to do next. But, um, you know, we, we put one foot in front of the other. And that was in 1980. Um, in Shortly after that, in 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 eighty, I started hearing about uh, what was going to be this, you know, revolution where people would have a machine in their house that they could um, videotape on, you know, that with a camera, or they could tape off the TV, or they could play cassettes, some kind of video cassettes through their <laughs> TV. Um, I didn't know anybody that owned one of these machines um, called a VCR. Um, but it just sounded like such an amazing idea. Um, Paul and I said, you know, we, we've got all these drummers around. Let's start filming them because there's so many people that can't come to New York. Maybe they would benefit from seeing some master classes and, and lectures and so forth on video. And so we started filming. We knew nothing about video. We, you know, I mean, it got to the point where at one point we taped lights up to the ceiling and we burned the ceiling tiles because uh, the lights <laughs> got too hot. Um, and throughout my whole business career, I've pretty much fallen into every pothole that you can fall into. And, you know, then you have to figure out how you pull yourself out of the hole. But um, one thing led to another and we put a little ad in Modern Drummer for an instructional video and, and a week later, we started getting some checks in the mail. It was this amazing nice. thing, you know. Nice. We'd be home, you know, you'd be home at sleep and a check would come in the mail. And you'd get there the next day and you'd have, you know, a check there. So I always like the saying, you're not an entrepreneur until you make money in your sleep. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, I thought this was a, a great thing. What so was here, the first, you know, we had, what was the sorry, first video ahead. that you did? You know, it's funny. I think it was Bernard Purdy. Mm. We did a, a video. Never heard of no him. Longer, 
available <laughs> with Bernard. Um, th- the first couple, and you know, I should have this more together, but I, I kind of tend to look more forward than back. Um, the first couple were Bernard Purdy, Lenny White, uh, John Schofield, the guitar player, because he was teaching at the school at that point. Um, is that the Lenny, is, uh, is that the one with with Dennis Chambers? No, no, no. that that came much later. This was just it was called on improvisation. It was just John doing a master class. All these early ones were really, really uh, kind of primitive productions. Um, like I said, you know, we tape up lights, we borrowed cameras, we had no idea what we were doing, you know, we learned editing, you know, we kind of learned every step of the way as we went. Um, but one of them was was Yogi Horton, which has kind of become a, a, a bit of a cult classic video. It's no, It hasn't been available for many years, and, um, you know, there are copies floating around, and, you know, it's on the internet. And Yogi was a drummer, a sad ending. He committed suicide, but he was a, a hell of an R&B drummer. Played with Luther Vandross and uh, Roberta Flack, uh, mm-hmm. Ashford and Simpson, and you know did a lot of the R&B records um, in, in the early '80s in New York. Was a real busy drummer. Great, great, great groove player and a great guy. But came to a, a, a tragic ending. Um, but. So you know, we had a couple of products that we were selling at that point, and then um, my one of my heroes and still hero and favorite drummers. Um, I started, you know, stalking him with Steve Gadd, mm-hmm. and um, I would call him and I try to meet him, and you know, he'd talk to me and say he's interested, and then we'd try to set up a meeting, and then he would cancel it, and and you know, this went on for for a number of months. But I was relentless in, in, in my stalking him. And um, one day we actually did meet and he agreed to, um, to do a, a, a video. And um, that was the Up Close video. And that mm-hmm. really put our company, which was called at the time DCI Music Video, which basically stood for Drummers Collective Inc. Um, DCI Music Video you know, really put us on the map because... Steve was doing everything under the sun, um, doing these amazing records, and no one could see him because he was just in New York, um, you know, pretty much in studios day and night, except, you know, he'd do a concert with, you know, Simon Garfunkel for, you know, 400,000 people in in, in, uh, Central Park. Right. So he was real tough to see. Um, And he played in in the clubs in New York sometimes late at night when he was done recording. Um, and it was mind blowing to, to see him, you know, in, in those circumstances, but we eventually did a video. We became friends. We've been friends since, you know, 1981. I'm really proud to be able to say he's a, he's a good friend and, um, I love him dearly and respect his musicality, maybe even more now than ever. Um, he's just to me, you know, a brilliant, brilliant player. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's, is he is definitely within my top three, if not my number one favorite drummer. Yeah. I, I, I just, I, I can't say enough about the dude, about how he plays and, you know, between it's between him and, you know, he and Steve Jordan. So yeah, well, maybe I it's a Steve Jordan. thing. So yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what? Gad, you know, really, to me, opened a lot of the doors that a lot of other guys, you know, came in and, and are brilliant. You know, you know, I don't know what guys, you know, would be sounding like had it not been for Steve sort of pioneering. I mean, he was responsible for this, the, you know, to me, changed the way drums were recorded on records. 
uh, to, the to, this tom tom and bass drum sounds you know mm-hmm. he, he changed you know drum sounds in, rec- in in popular music you know on on record you know which is a pretty major statement you know yeah um he, he was so influential at the time and then you know to me he was like the first of that generation that was then followed by Weckl and 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 Vinnie Cayuta and you know guys like that you know Steve Jordan that kind of came right behind Gad um, and absolutely you know brilliant players and made you know huge contributions of their own but Steve to me changed the the, the recording you know business the way drums were mic'd and the way mm-hmm. they they sounded and. Um, you know, was was hugely influential. You know, on on everybody kind of afterwards, sure. and, and it's still it, he still he still is it still is, and yeah, his his sort of reach is still so it's such a broad stroke um, that it, you know it's pretty amazing. There's a few things that I didn't. I didn't one. I didn't realize that DCI stood for Drummers Collective Inc. Which I and I because I wonder. If, I always wondered if you guys ever had any issue with like DCI marching and. And DCI right. Inc. Um, another thing about that up close video that I was going to mention is I think the most amazing part of that video is when he plays brushes on the tape box. Right. And right. it's just like, I, I blew my mind when I, the first time yeah. I, I ever saw that. Uh, and the third thing that I wanted to talk, obviously I'm a, I'm a Steve, Steve, uh, Steve Gad fan. But the other day you told me about a story of him saving your life. You almost fell down an elevator shaft. And I feel like I feel like we should tell the the audience that story because I thought it was a great story. Well, all right. Well, just quickly, the the tape box thing um, that was on I think it was on the second Gad video, which was called In Session, I believe. You're right. I'm sorry. I should go back and look at these. You no, know, you're so, right. You're it, it totally was. That was very spontaneous. We were working in a, a real good friend of mine. Uh, these two brothers uh, owned a, a studio in New York. And actually, I would barter time in the beginning. I would play on sessions for them and things that they demos and everything, and they would give me studio time. And that's kind of how that happened. We filmed a, a bunch of the early DCI videos there, Gad. We filmed Jocko, uh, the Jocko Pastorius video, which is pretty amazing, and uh, Louis Belson, you know, a whole you know, number of uh, programs we did there. But... The uh, tape box thing, you know, we were just listening to a playback at one point in the control room. And I said to Steve, you know, we should do something with brushes. And he said, yeah. And then he started talking about the sound of brushes. He says, you know, like, you know, from my memory, I'm thinking back because I haven't talked about this stuff. Um, He said, I think, uh, you know, I love this sound. Do Do you ever hear what it sounds like playing brushes on an Ampeg? tape box. I said, no. So he said, here, hand me, there was one laying there. He picks up the box. He said, you know, here's a, give, give me my brushes. He starts playing this thing and it blew my mind. It sounded so unbelievable. And in the studio, there was a raised platform that we were sitting on. So there was a, it was a wooden, uh, like a plywood floor and he could actually hit the floor. It sounded like a bass drum mm-hmm. and it kind of boomed a little bit because it was this raised platform. So he starts playing this thing, he starts getting this funky thing where he, then he starts doing a thing between his hands and his foot. And it was like, I said, I said, hold it, stop, you know, let's get a camera in here, you know. So that was um, totally spontaneous. He said, here, you hold the, I, you know, figuring out it was a small space. Where I was going to say, was that you holding the box? 
Yeah. Yeah. It was me holding the box. It was like, it, believe me, it was totally spontaneous. As was, just as a, a side note on the Up Close video, I wasn't planning to be on camera to interview him. Um, I had a list of questions and I was going to sit out kind of in front under the camera, off camera and ask him. He said to me, he said, man, you know, come sit next to me. It'll be more intimate, you know, rather than me like talking to you over the drums. Just come sit next to me. And I said, wow, you know, I hadn't been you know, prepared for that, you know. Right. And uh, I, I, didn't even, I had like this funky ripped T-shirt. I had to borrow a sweater from the cameraman. So I, I looked, you know, presentable on camera because I was wearing <laughs> some funky old T-shirt. So that was also totally spontaneous and totally, you know, that that wasn't really the plan going in. That's but, uh, that's sometimes the best the best stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's how that's how that ha those two things happen. Um, in terms of Steve saving my life, yeah, it was a you know pretty funny story um, that uh, he lived he used to live on Worth Street in Manhattan, which is downtown, very close to City Hall, and he lived and had a big loft. And the loft had a huge freight elevator, the real old school freight elevators, where the doors opened horizontally. So one, one half of the door would, would slide down into the, basically the floor, and the other half would go up into the ceiling. And it had these big straps, and you kind of flipped them, and then you would step on the, the one going down into the floor, and it would push them both up, and it would open. And, and it was the, you know, probably big enough to practically fit a car in it was you know i don't know what was in that building prior to making apartments in there but that was how steve got in and out of his apartment was in this massive freight elevator so one day i was hanging out with him at his apartment and um we were talking and i go to leave and i pick up the strap and he's to my left and i'm walking straight into the elevator i open the doors up and i go to take a step and all of a sudden, Steve comes like darting at me and grabs me, like puts his arms around me and pushes me back. And, and he, you know, yells like, no, you know, right. and I didn't know what was happening because I was looking at him as I was talking, kind of saying goodbye and taking a step simultaneously. Well, there was no elevator there. There was an empty shaft. And he lived, if I'm not mistaken, on the sixth floor. So I would have fallen down six flights of, uh, you know, the elevator shaft. So I guess oh, you could say Steve may have saved my life, you know. <laughs> um, years later, I got to repay him, um, but that's a whole other story that, that we won't get into now. <laughs> but I, 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 I did help him along the way with something that was life-changing. So uh, it all evened up, and it was a good thing, you know. I like it. So I a couple questions about – so when you had you had Drummers Collective and – at at some point, was there a decision to say, "Hey, I'm I'm going to be in the business of drumming rather than I'm going to be a drummer," or were you always sort of planning on doing that? Like when you originally came back to New York, were you planning on trying to be a full time player? Yeah, I mean, my heart, you know, definitely, you know, I wanted to play. I was also, you know, realistic that it's a really tough, you know, especially, you know, in New York, you had, you know, great guys. Um, it was a very tight knit circle of players and, you know, to kind of get the, 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 the crumbs that, that the main guys, uh, you know, couldn't get to, you know, it, it took, it took a long time and I could see that it was a, a you know, really difficult living. Um, and I kind of made a decision that I really didn't want to go on the road. Mm -hmm. So at the time, you know, I was 
getting to sub some Broadway shows and I, I, you know, I was doing some jingles and I met, you know, people, I was doing different jingles, um, and song demos. Um, uh, you know, f a funny little story is I was working, sometimes I would uh, record song demos for a writer named Gary Portnoy. And one day he, um, asked me t to, uh, record, not the TV version that was done in LA by Vinny, but I recorded the single of the theme show for a TV show called Shears. <laughs> and it was, it was a top 10 single. And, uh, you know, that, that was one of my, uh, playing claims to fame was playing, you know, on the, the record, you know, version, the radio version. And right. Cause they write the jingle for the tune and then they write the whole, they release the whole tune so you can sell it as a record. Right. 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 So, you know, the show was, was getting, pretty popular so Vinny had done the show version and then I, I did the, uh, the the record version in New York that was a cool experience but um yeah so you know I I um I saw there were you know there are opportunities you know I like business um and I I just you know started seeing some some opportunities there with video so you know Paul and I got more involved on the video front and we hired somebody to help run drummers collective and you know it went like that for a long time um we ended up moving a couple years after we had the collective i think it was 84 85 we moved our lease came up and the landlord wouldn't renew the lease it was part of the whole Times square rebuilding mm -hmm. and um, they said they were going to be you know either knocking down or renovating the building they weren't renewing leases and so you know we had to find a lease uh another space and it was brutal um because in new york you could imagine not a lot of buildings wanted to have a drum school come in sure so you know we were getting down to the wire and i had seen an an, an ad actually in the new york times realist commercial real estate section on a sunday um, that McDonald's, the, the hamburger joint, had they had excess space above restaurants around the, the New York, New Jersey area that they would rent out. Um, and I met somebody uh, at McDonald's. We had a meeting, you know, Paul and I went and, and uh, met this man that took a real liking to us. And he was a, one of the real angels in my career. There's been a handful of people that were really influential and in helping us get to where we wanted to go. And the guy from McDonald's who was in charge of East Coast real estate, you know, really wanted to help us out. And um, he made it happen so that we could take the space on where the school is currently on 14th Street. Yeah, I was going to say, it's still above a McDonald's now. It's still there. Yeah. It's, it's, that, it's that space. And, um, yeah, the school's still there. Uh, but he was one of those people that really stepped into our lives and, and you know, was you know, incredibly important, um, and to who we owe a gratitude, you know, a, a real, you know, gra gratitude to a real debt of gratitude. So do you, so the, the collective, is that still yours or did you sell that? No, I, um, about four years ago, um, the school moved and had a beautiful space and made a major investment in the space, did everything right with license, you know, licensed contractors and, and all building permits. And it, it was a large space. It was the whole floor of a building. It went from 18th Street to 19th Street in Manhattan. Wow. You know, you, the, the windows were on, on either end. And um, 
there was a, a, a very quiet business underneath, a book publishing company, and they had a lot of space in the building and a lot of clout with the landlord, and they were difficult. They, you know, they heard a little bit of drumming in a couple of the offices, like when the air conditioning wasn't blowing, you know, you, it was that quiet. The, the air conditioning would disguise the sound, but it was enough, and they made enough of a stink that the landlord took the collective to court to get us evicted. And we went through a whole lengthy legal procedure, um, big, big legal bills. The landlord was suing each one of us because we signed personally for the lease for several million dollars for the, for the duration. They were suing us for the whole value of the lease. Right. And we're getting served with papers, and it was a really, really uncomfortable situation. So uh, Paul and, and I said to our two other partners who were the current you know, owners of the collective, we said, listen, if you remove us from this lawsuit, um, you can have the school. And, um, you know, there was a little bit of financial, you know, uh, money changed hands, but, but not a lot. And um, so consequently, after 30 something years, Paul and I are, you know, no longer owners of the collective. I got and you. By our two other partners uh, that were in there, John Castellano and Anthony Citronetti. Well, I can tell you, I know what that's like. My family's been in business since 74, and we just went through about a three and a half year legal battle and did the whole thing and, you know, bought out partners, and it's a mess. So I I get it. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to, you know. And, and my dad was, he's like, you know what? At some point, I just, I just want it to be over. I don't care what happens. I just want it to be over. Yeah. You reach a point where it's just really uncomfortable and mm -hmm. you're dealing with lawyers in court, and it was taking a huge amount of time. And, you know, at the time, I was, you know, had a lot going on with Hudson Music, so I kind of, uh, you know, made the decision. It was really tough because you own a business for 30 years, and it's something I was so proud of um, all that time. But it just, for me and for my family, uh, you know, felt like it was the right time to make the break. Sure, because it's mentally taxing, too. Yeah, it was, it was tough. Yeah. It, was, it was tough. And the, the, the collective was never something that was a big financial windfall for anybody. So it was, you know, I kind of weighed and said to myself, you know, here, you know, there's, there's not a lot of money on the table and there's an unbelievable amount of aggravation and, and frustration involved. Right. So uh, we kind of made a choice based on that. So what, when, when did the transition happen between or from DCI to Hudson Music and why, why the transition? In, um, in the late 80s, we were we started working with uh, somebody that we had known for a while. He was the president of Alfred Music. His name was Sandy Feldstein, mm -hmm. um, a very prolific writer. Did um, a lot of band methods and and you know had written hundreds of books for Alfred. Yeah, Dave and, uh, Garibaldi. David Garibaldi brought him yes. up in. Uh in our in our interview he talked that he went to sandy with an idea and after a weekend yeah. came back and sandy was like here's actually what you need to do and sort of like whittled yeah. it down to to future sounds exactly yeah that's sandy's sandy was an, you know a, a, an absolute workaholic and and very very smart man and and he would take manuscripts like you said and i i saw him hundreds you know many of them marked up you know and he yeah he really helped David um, put together future sounds um, in, you know in a, in a very hands-on way he was you know really influential, but we had met Sandy and we had 
we had ideas because of things that were happening at the collective. There were teachers that were, you know, really kind of developing new techniques and, and, and taking rhythms and applying them to drum set. And we had ideas of taking that content and putting out some books. We had never done any books at that point. So we went to Sandy and said, would you be interested in working with us on the books? And he said, yeah. And there was a, a period of time um, where we started working um, on, on the first book, which was Latin Rhythms for the Drum Set with a uh, fantastic, brilliant uh, per Latin percussionist named Frank Malabe, who has a uh, long time been deceased. But Frankie was working with a lot of guys in New York. He would bring guys into his room, you know, anyone that was around that could play drum set and say, here, try this rhythm with your left hand and try this in your right hand and put this on the floor, Tom, and put this on the bass drum. And he was really creating these these drum set rhythms that would take the Latin and, you know, Afro-Cuban rhythms um, and, and figuring out how to apply them and make them swing and make them sonically right um, for drum set. And we started working on this book. So long story short, Sandy ended up leaving Alfred to um, run a company called Columbia Picture Publications, which was another book public, music book publisher. Um, and he said, he asked if we would be interested in selling, at the time, selling DCI and continuing, you know, with a five-year employment contract and developing a lot of product using their capital to go much quicker, produce a lot of product and, and kick off the whole book publishing side, which was a label called Manhattan Music Publications that we started. And so we worked out a deal um, First, on a handshake with Sandy, he gave us a bunch of money up front, which was amazing, actually, uh, in hindsight, to uh, pr start producing books. And we got to know Sandy and really got very close with him. And then uh, he, uh, then he kind of said, "Well, how about we, you know, we buy Manhattan Music and uh, DCI?" So we agreed to that, worked out a, a term, uh, a five-year employment contract, and. Shortly after we sold to Columbia, to CPP Bellwin, um, they were bought by Warner Brothers Publications. So mm. suddenly I was now an employee of Warner Brothers. Um, they were based in Miami, uh, North Miami, and uh, Sandy was down there, and I was in New York with Paul, and, and we, we kept a small production office open in New York, and uh, the sales guys all moved down to Florida. And we uh, produced an, an incredible amount of product over the next five years um, under the DCI, you know, Warner Brothers banner. Well, and that's not to interrupt you, but that's what I was going to ask you, because I've watched the, the Carter Beaufort under the table and drumming D video. I, I watched that VHS literally until it broke and I had to buy it again and then it broke again and I had to buy it again. So I've bought three copies of it and I always thought that it said DCI in the beginning. Right. And then I was looking it up before you and I were talking and it said Warner Brothers and I was like, "Wait a minute, that was a DCI video." That that cleared up a lot of that uh a lot of that confusion. Yeah. Uh, you know, unfortunately, and you know, in hindsight, Warner Brothers, you know, the DCI name at the at the time in 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 the late 80s and early 90s the DCI name was really recognized and really well known around the world by drummers obviously 
you know, DCI was like a pimple uh, compared to Warner Brothers. So Warner Brothers felt, oh, we're going to make, you know, we're going to kind of like do away with the DCI name and, and, and promote this now as Warner Brothers Presents, which I felt was a real mistake because drummers didn't identify with Warner Brothers. I mean, of course, everybody knows who Warner Brothers is, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of Warner Brothers films and, you know, gigantic company, you know, at the time, you know, they merged Time Warner with AOL and, you know, I mean, obviously a multi-billion dollar company and DCI was this tiny little drum company, uh, instructional drum company, but it diluted what, it, it diluted the, the name. And then what happened was, um, our contracts expired. Sandy was let go from Warner's, and we, Paul and I, both didn't enjoy corporate life. It became corporate after Sandy left. While Sandy was there, he was really cool. Bare, you know, never got in our business. You know, approved every literally every budget we ever submitted for every, any project we ever wanted to do for Warner's at the time. Um, you know, he just greenlighted everything. And, um, you know, he was cool. He'd say, you know, when you need to talk to me, call me or fact, at the time fax me or, uh, or come down to Florida. And, and he was such a hands-off guy. You know, he, he recognized that we had done a good job, you know, developing product. And so he, he really left us alone. But then um, our contract was up. We did, Paul and I didn't want to continue. And that was around the time that Alfred Music bought Warner Brothers publications and so um actually that was a a little while later Uh, but we decided we didn't want to renew our contracts we didn't want to move to florida so we had a one-year non-compete we produced a few things for warners in that year and then we started hudson music in 1998 i got you and um and that's kind of uh where we are today you know we we started i guess under hudson um, that's when the DVD, you know, things started going from VHS to DVD. Sure. Um, and then from DVD, it went on obviously to digital. And you know, we we we, you know, tried to keep the catalog current and staying up with all those different, you know, the different technologies. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, you know, it, it's it's still to me a, a work in progress. Um, right. Well, I mean, I think I think everybody's sort of still figuring out the digital landscape. I mean, it's been. You know, especially online and all that stuff. It's been a while, but it hasn't been that long. It hasn't been thirty years. Uh, you know, like like television or forty years before you, people started to right. do this. Right. So everybody's sort of winging it and 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 you know feeling it out as they go along. And the one thing I did want to ask was how how be other than the obvious shift of going from VHS to DVD to digital download, have you? Have you seen a say a drop off in in print media or are are people still getting the books because me personally I think it's hard to practice on an iPad you know with yeah. a book on an iPad and I want to mark up a book if I have it or something like that um so I I I just wanted to sort of get your opinion of where you sort of see it going uh or what the trend is like right now Well you know just stepping back briefly you know I love the DVD format because it allowed for instant access chapter wise you know you could chapter right. a, a program our stuff tended to be long 
So on VHS, you know, the maximum you could fit on a VHS tape was 90 minutes. The 120s used such thin tape that they wore out quickly and would, would rip and everything. So we never really wanted to go above 90. But, you know, as you know, if you had a VCR, it was really hard to find the stuff. You'd have to fast forward and jockey back and forth. And it could take a minute or two to get from one place to the other, which to me was a real drag. DVDs came out and they were fantastic. We could chapter the stuff the way we wanted them. You hit a button, boom, you're right at that chapter. And it was uh, allowed, you know, it, it was much more user-friendly. Sure. Um, so that was great. Um, digital is also great because of that, that, that accessibility to me. Um, so I just wanted to kind of say that. Um, in terms of the print side, um, I agree that I think... You know, if you're reading a novel, you know, or you're reading, a, you know, some kind of uh, autobiography or something like that, you know, you can do it on a Kindle or an iPad, or, you know, you can even do it on your phone if you want to kind of, you know, scroll the pages around and, and so forth. But I do think that, uh, you know, I can't speak for other instruments. I know for drummers and for drum books, I, I do think that guys still want to be able to, like you said, Fold the book up, mark it up, put it on a stand next to you, you know, put on your headphones if you're doing some play along stuff and have the book there. Um, and so, you know, we're seeing that, that, you know, DVD sales have, you know, plummeted, uh, obviously, like CD sales for, you know, for music. Sure. Um, and they haven't been replaced, you know, digitally. So, you know, the business has gotten, you know, very, very difficult. Um, but the print business hasn't dropped off as much. Um, I think that, like I said, people do want to hold a book and, and mark it up and make notes in it and so forth. But, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, there's a pendulum swinging, you know, and it, it's still, the, the business is so different. I mean, just yesterday I heard an announcement that, um, that Amazon is going to try to start competing with YouTube and they're going to have video, um, like a video delivery system like YouTube, but they're going to pay the copyright owners, you know, uh, whatever it is, 50 or 60% of whatever money is collected. So they're going to try to encourage people to start using them rather than posting on YouTube, you know, you post with Amazon and, and monetize your content. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I saw that actually. So, you know, it's... I think that that the last five years and probably a, a couple more years at least, there's going to be a period of transition. I don't know that mm -hmm. anyone knows where it's going. I think that at the end of the day, hopefully people that, that own the copyrights and spend a lot of time and a lot of money producing whatever it is, whether it's a book, you know, a drum book, you know, a a how to build a a boat book, you know, or or, right. or a home improvement video, you know. If you're, you know, I, I do believe that people should be paid for their for their efforts, um, and it, it, you know, it was it, the instructional stuff that I've always worked on, you know, was always an important source of income for a lot of the drummers we worked with, you know, mm -hmm. the the stuff, and and they've lost a lot of that because sales have, have gone down. So you know, it, it's it's impacted. A lot of guys, and it's impacted even the amount of, of new product we can put out, you know, because the sales have dropped off so much. We've, mm -hmm. uh, we used to put out sometimes 20, 30 titles 
in a year, and now we put out, you know, two or three. And I wanted to ask about that. Okay, say I come to you and I say, hey, Rob, I, I, I really want to write a drum book. Um, you know, I, I think I have some cool ideas. Uh, what is your what is your suggestion and and what do you think that what are some mistakes that a lot of people make when they're when they're either writing a drum book or they're you know they're thinking about writing a drum book and they're not somebody like Steve Smith or Dave Weckl or somebody like that who can just write a book and people will buy it you know it it's it's gotten really crowded um you know 20 years ago there was a fraction of the product that's out now um, you know, publishers publish and, you know, the large companies back in the day, like the Warner Brothers or Alfred or Hal Leonard, you know, they're, they, they survive and grow by putting out more and more product. And, you know, for a long time, the drum market could absorb a, a lot of it. You know, like I said, we would put out 20, 30 titles some years and, you know, most of them would sell. We would at least recoup the investment of producing in, in a relatively short amount of time. And, you know, you do that, you know, year after year for five or 10 years. And suddenly, you know, a lot of the good ideas have been taken, you know, I mean, how, how many books on rudiments can you look at? How many books on stickings can you look at? How many books? So, you know, finding now, nowadays the challenge is finding the, the whole or the, a, a unique, you know, spin on things that it, it that's so fresh that that somebody says, "Yeah, I'm ready to spend you know twenty or thirty dollars on it." You know, whatever it is, um, it's it's really difficult. You know, drum set methods um, are just about impossible to sort of you know break through. Um, and if you look on the bestseller list on Amazon, you know, for drum books, it's still Ted Reed. You know, it's it's Stick Control. Yeah, it's, it's timeless it's classics. Still, it's the timeless. And, you know, they're, they're still always in the top, you know, top 10, you know, perennially. You know, we've been fortunate to put out a couple of books that have become staples. The, the Tommy Igo Groove Essentials books are, you know, always right there with the Stone books. And, I literally um, just got know. an email 30 seconds ago from Hudson Music about the Tommy Igo Groove Essentials now available at Guitar Center. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a little, there's a little plug for you. <laughs> yeah. Guitar Center's running a sale on, on the Groove Essentials stuff right now. So, uh, yeah, it's good. But, um, yeah, you know, it's... Coming back to your question, it's it's really difficult. If I were somebody starting out right now, and and believe me, I get emails, you know, a couple of week from people that from all over the world that have a book or went to music school and had to do a thesis and want to see if if they could turn their thesis or their you know final paper into right. a book. Um, unfortunately, you know, we used to accept some you know projects like that as like kind of unsolicited. But nowadays, there's, you know, I, I can't think of anything we've put out in the last, you know, three or four years that, that just sort of, you know, found its way to us unexpectedly. So you're saying now um, is not the time for me to pitch my book idea to you? <laughs> you know, maybe in 10 minutes, but at this particular moment, probably not, you know. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> it's, it's, it's hard, you know. I mean, I'm sure. I'm sure. You know, think for yourself, you know, what would make somebody buy your rudimental book and not, you know, you know, 10 other ones that, that are out there and are proven. And, you know, a lot of it obviously is dictated um, by teachers. You know, if you go, if you have private lessons or you're in a music school um, or, you know, in band, 
uh, you know, a lot of that gets dictated by what the teacher grew up on mm-hmm. and, and kind of breaking a book into the teacher's comfort zone uh, isn't easy. You know, they, they've got to have a real reason that something's really unique and really, you know, special and it's really going to help them and their students. A quick pause for the cause and we'll be right back at it with Rob Wallace. This session is brought to you by Evans Level 360, which encourages you to let no circle box you in. It gives you the most consistent fit for your drums so you can get a greater tonal range and effortless tuning and the freedom to express yourself any way you want to. And you can learn more about the Evans Level 360 at EvansDrumHeads.com. Another great sponsor is DW Drums. As you know, I've been playing DW for years. They make great drums. They're great people, and they foster drumming initiatives, much like this podcast, all over the world. Be sure to check them out at dwdrums.com. Last but not least, my friends over at Sabian have just introduced the new HH Vanguard. They're expanding the spectrum of the HH series. So it has a tapered edge, a small vintage bell, a classic HH profile, and pinpoint lathing. But what you need to know is it's designed to provide exceptional versatility and feel. Each model responds to the way you touch it that will surprise you and it will inspire you. For more information, you can actually hear these new HH symbols or hand-hammered symbols at sabian.com forward slash Vanguard. Now, let's get back into it with Rob Wallace. Speaking of unique, uh, I know that you guys just released Steve Smith's uh, Pathways of Motion book that we went, I saw you at the cutting room, we uh, we went, which was an amazing event. Um, so what, and I know that you guys are, you're doing a, a thing with Mark Juliana. I talked to Mark about that the other day. Tell us a little bit about Steve's book and about, and about Mark's new book. Sure. Steve's book, um, I, I have an app that I developed uh, on my own outside of Hudson a couple years back called Drum Guru, uh, you know, for iPhone, iPad, and, and Android. And um, Steve and I were talking, um, he, he has an apartment in New York, he, he spends a, a good amount of time in the city, and we, we you know, get together um, pretty regularly and have lunch or whatever. And one day, he was saying... He's starting to develop some ideas on match grip, and he said he you know, researched it. There wasn't a lot of printed material or video material on, on match grip technique. Most of it came down through the years and was based on traditional grip. So he said, you know, Steve being Steve, um, the perennial student, even you know, at the age he's at, he's always learning and always trying to push the boundary. So – I, was it you or was it Adam uh, from Modern Drummer who told the story about Steve getting home from tour and calling and his wife oh, answered? Was that you? Yeah. So tell that story. That's a really good story about about his practice ethic. Yes. Steve, like I said, Steve is just – he's perennial practice student, um, never kind of is satisfied with, with his status quo and sort of his – you know, plateau of where he is playing wise. You know, one day I knew he was in Europe for a couple of weeks and I needed to talk to him at the time. I forget we were working on some project. This was a number of years back. And I knew, you know, he was getting home like, let's say, Wednesday night. So I figured, okay, you know, I had in my book to call him Thursday morning. And um, I called, you know, early. He was, you know, still on the, in the West Coast time at that point. I called him. You know, he hadn't been home even for 12 hours and he had to have, he had to sleep at some point, you know, over the night. 
Right. I called and his and his wife said, you know, he he's downstairs practicing. I said, you're kidding. He hasn't been home. I said, did you even open his mail yet? She said, no. He just had to go down and practice. He'd been away for three weeks. Didn't you know? Hang with her. Didn't open his mail. Right. And, just you know, right to the practice room. So yeah, when he called me back, I said, man, you, you know, you're incredible. It's I, I you know, um, I can't believe that you know you're that that devoted. You just came back from a three week whatever it was, two three week tour in Europe, playing every day and, and downstairs practicing. And, and, he, you know, and yeah, he's well, Steve I, Smith, you know. Yeah, and I, Steve Smith. I just, uh, I actually just finished this book called Relentless and it was a, it was the trainer. He's an NBA trainer and he trains Kobe. He trained Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan, Dwayne Wade, all of these people. I mean, really mm. top level guys. And he said that what he noticed is that all of the guys that are at that level practice more than everybody else, even mm -hmm. when they've reached that level. It's like the better – he said that the better Michael Jordan got and the more iconic he became, the more he practiced. So it was mm. like a lot of people, you know, when they arrive, they sort of they sort of wane in terms of their practice routine and, and right. sort of go through the motions. And he said that every year Michael Jordan worked out harder and demanded more of himself and got better and better and better uh, rather than just sort of letting it all – uh, not go to his head, but just say, okay, well, I've made it. I'm Michael Jordan. Now I can relax. It kind of reminds me how yeah. Steve is with that. Steve is just, he's one of those guys. And, you know, coming back to the Pathways book, he said, I'm, you know, I'm starting to develop some, you know, cool match grip technique ideas. And he said, I think, excuse me, they could be very good for drum guru. I say, great. You know, Steve being Steve, I, that's all I need to hear from him to, you know, know about it. He, we were actually in a, in a restaurant. He starts, you know, he grabbed, uh, like, I think he grabbed, like, a fork and a, and a knife, and he, he started demonstrating on the table, you know, some, some things of hand positions and stuff. I say, great, let's, you know, when do you want to go film? So we went in and, and filmed, and, of course, Steve being Steve, he came in with, you know, a massive amount of material that was really interesting and really unique and that, you know, neither of us had seen covered before um, in book or video. So we filmed all this stuff, and kind of at the end of the session, we you know looked around. Joe Bergamini, who was helping produce the uh, content with us, we all looked around at each other and said, "You know, this is really cool stuff." And I forget who said it. Um, could have been me. It could have been Joe. Could have been Steve. Actually, it said, "You know, this could could actually be material for a book." And kind of the light bulb went off, and we all said, "Yeah, let's well, let's think about it." You know, it had been a long day of of, of recording and filming. We said, "Let's you know, let's talk about it. Let's mm -hmm. look at, get copies of the stuff. We'll burn some DVDs. Let's look at the stuff and see what we got." So that's how that project happened. You know, totally you know organic. Um, it you know kind of one thing led to another, and most of it was really based on on, on Steve working you know diligently in his own practice. Um, he worked in his own practice to uh, develop these techniques that, that he covers in the book. There's four basic uh, positions that he covers. Right. And, you know, a lot of this was also done, I should note, in preparation for the journey tour. Mm -hmm. um, he had had rotator cuff problems and, you know, had seen some doctors. They they had recommended rotator cuff surgery. He didn't want to go the surgery route necessarily if he could avoid it. So he, he actually did it with diet and physical therapy. 
Uh, it's pretty amazing. But he also was concerned that he wouldn't either re-injure the shoulder uh, from playing the journey gig because he hadn't played, you know, rock and roll in a while in like a two and a half hour show. So he, uh, a lot of these techniques, this this was all sort of happening, you know, to get, you know, kind of simultaneously. And that's that's really how the book and uh, and video and and drum guru lessons all came about. And it's a, I mean, it's it's a big book. It's a hundred and hundred and three page, hundred and five pages. Yeah. So. It's, I mean, there's there's definitely a ton of information in there, and the stuff that he went over at the at the opening or the uh, the, yeah, the release party was was great too. Um, so I suggest anybody you know who's looking to. So it says hand technique for the drum set using four versions of match grip, and which was really I, I can't explain it the way that Steve explained it, but it was just a very fresh approach and a different way of looking at match grip which i thought was was really really interesting so if anybody wants to check that out there'll be there'll be notes in the in the show notes section uh or links to it that you can check out and then uh so and then mark has a book you guys are working on a you and mark Giuliano are working on a book yes too. yes um we're working on a uh, well you know mark uh, I've, I've been a fan of his playing. He's to me one of the young guys coming up that has a, a fresh, real fresh sound, a real fresh voice on the instrument. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, I, I've gotten to know Mark a little bit, and you know, had been wanting to do something with him. And he kind of said, "I'm not ready. I'm working on some ideas. I'm working on some things." And you know, maybe a year, year and a half went by, and. I bumped into him and I said, you know, are we any closer to doing something? You know, I, I want to do it while I'm still, you know, able to walk and talk, you know, I'm getting <laughs> old. So he said, uh, he said, actually, yes, I, I think I got something, you know, that's coming together. And he presented it at the last year's PASIC show. He did a, a, a master class at PASIC and it was really well received. And it was based on some of these ideas in his book. Um, that he's he's in the process now of writing. Uh, it most of it's pretty much done, but that it covers really. Help. He he has some tangible ways of of teaching or for the student to the drummer to learn. You know, improvisational ideas, and and Mark's very big on on trying to play with originality and kind of finding your own voice on the instrument. Um, which isn't to say, you know, you need to study the masters because every, everybody, you know, and going back to what I said earlier about the genius of Gad, I mean, he listened to Tony and Elvin and, and, you know, so, you know, everybody's, uh, stood on shoulders of guys before them and, um, Mark included, you know, his influences, he talks about, you know, Elvin and Tony and, and, and Steve, uh, as, as among many others, but th those are kind of maybe his big three. Um, but Mark came up with some real tangible ways of kind of sliding accents and rhythms and the bar line um, that really are, were fresh. And so I said to him, it'd be great to do a project. Um, I think it should be a book and a video. And, you know, these days... He, you know, he he said, "Yeah, that's great," and you know, I want to bring a, a band in because I, I work with these guys. It's the rhythm section that did the uh, the last David Bowie record, mm -hmm. 
Um, Jason Lindner on keyboards and Tim LaFave on, on bass from Tedeschi Trucks band. And uh, they work a lot together. And they kind of have this, you know, improvisational kind of free-form thing where they start grooves and develop songs based on improvisation. So long story short, um, I thought of the idea, not that it's, it's all that unique. I mean, it's been happening, you know, in, in, for a lot of projects where people uh, do crowdfunding to raise some funds to produce, whether it's a, you know, a, a new speaker system for, you know, for Wi-Fi and Bluetooth or, or you know, an, an instructional. I know, you know, guys have been doing it for records for a while. So I said to Mark, why don't we try this? Uh, it'll give us a, 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 you know, we'll try to raise the money. It'll give us a comfortable working budget. We can bring in the musicians, a great studio. You know, Mark and, and work, you know, obviously at a very high level, uh, production-wise, as do I. And um, so we did it, and it's currently running right now. And I've never done a, 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 a crowdfunding. It's on Pledge Music. And it's doing really well. Um, I, as of this morning, you know, it, it's a little over two weeks and we're 67 percent, you know, funded to our goal, which I think is really good because people say, you know, there's a lot of interest in the very beginning and a lot at the very end. Mm. But we've been, you know, we've been pretty steady, um, which has been great. So there's some really cool things that you can bid on. I mean, from pre-ordering the book and getting a signed copy before it's released to the, the, the high end is um, a trip to Sabian with Mark where you pick out a symbol and, you know, you, in advance you tell them you want to ride or you want to crash and, you know, you watch it being made and um, spend the day with, with Mark up at Sabian getting a tour of the factory. And uh, there's some other cool things, you know, really cool things going to rehearsal, uh, going to a gig with him. Uh, one day in New York and, uh, you know, different things like that. So, um, that's on that's on pledge music and and it's been it's been fun seeing seeing the responses and and you know people are receptive i think mark has a uh, a lot of interest at this point so uh you know i'm excited we're going to be actually filming uh for two days at a real nice studio where where mark records actually jojo mayer does a lot of work at called the bunker in brooklyn um in 10 in 10 days we're going into uh to film so we're we're getting all our ducks lined up and the crew and Mark's working on all the content and everything. Awesome. And I'll I'll link again, I'll link to this in in the show notes so that people can check it out and if great. they want if they want to pledge that would be great. Um and so I've one more question before I let you go because you've been sure. on both sides. You've been on the playing side, you've been on the business side and now you're sort of you're you're not now, but you've interweaved yourself sort of dealing with the with the artists and dealing with the the players but then working on, and so you understand both sides of the business very well and what is your advice now for for guys that are coming up uh that are trying to do this for a living or maybe just try to supplement their income doing this uh what do you see so what do you see in terms of like some effective ways that people are doing that other than just the standard gigging well i mean i think to make a a living now um, it, it, it varies according to a little bit to, to where you live. And the reason I say that is certain areas don't have opportunities like other areas. Uh, for instance, you know, in New York City, there's a very vibrant Broadway music scene. A lot of musicians are employed. Um, there's, you know, a number of drummers, you know, it might be a dozen, it might be two dozen. 
that are, you know, really active um, in terms of playing shows, subbing shows, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so, you know, if you're living in the New York area and you can get into the city, you know, that could be a a, a possible direction to try to focus effort to to working. But, you know, if you live in Iowa, you know, you're not going to get a lot of Broadway show work. So I think, excuse me, you know, you really need to see what's available musically where you live. And I think that unless you're fortunate enough to get into a, a band that either works a, lot, a real lot locally or is a you know a national or international touring band, or you know you live in a place like Las Vegas where there's a lot of show work, or you know L.A., New York, Nashville where the studio work, um, a little bit of studio work compared to what used to be. You know, I think you have to really piece together a number of things, mm-hmm. and I think that it all boils down to. Like anything else, like you said, successful athletes, you know, it, it comes down to really hard work. I don't know anybody. Um, you can't name a single musician to me um, that doesn't work really hard. Um, it's a it's a twenty four seven you know job. Whether you're playing, practicing, rehearsing with a band, learning a show, you know, working on your chart reading. Um, I, you know, teaching, I mean, there, you know, there are a lot of different sources of income and many of them may not in themselves be a full-time salary. Mm -hmm. Uh, so you have to, like I said, piece together these things. Some guys go the route of getting a teaching degree and going to teach, you know, middle school band or high school band. and, And that's cool. And then they play on weekends and a little bit at night, um, for their, either their enjoyment or to supplement their income. But, um, you know, I, I don't think there's one track. Um, it's not like going to law school, getting a law degree, and then going to work at a law firm. You know, sure. that, that's, that's, you know, sort of a, a much straighter line, if you want to call it that. I've always, been, I've always said that, like, if you're, even if you're an athlete, if you're a great athlete, you can just walk on, you know, and, yep. and make the team. But there's no, there's no, uh, there's no, you know, tryouts. As a drummer, you don't just walk in and get bumped up to the majors. Yeah, you're not going to walk in and start, you know, playing, uh, you know, with uh, Springsteen or, you know, or Usher or something like right. that. You, know, you got to definitely, you know, pay your dues. Um, th- you know, there's still plenty of guys that are that are working and, you know, making good living. Um, you know, some someone that's, you know, surprised me at how busy he actually is. And even though I know him, Mark Juliana. You know, he, he'll go to Europe twice a month. I mean, he'll, he'll commute to Europe like, you know, I'll, I'll go to New Jersey, you know, from New York. I mean, you know, he thinks nothing. Oh, yeah, I'll be back don't worry, four days in, in Paris and come home and be home for four days and then go, you know, to Germany for, for five days. Um, and, then, you know, he was on the Seth Meyers show for four nights last week. Mm-hmm. He did, did that the two days right after that. He had gigs in Boston. So guys that are working, you know, I think you have to be a unique player and really professional and really strong at what you do. I think chart reading is something that's really become important. Um, if you're especially looking for certain type of work, you know, you need to be able to navigate a chart. And I think being very broad in terms of being able to handle different styles of music is important. I mean, you know, it's kind of the same stuff that everyone's been saying for a lot of years I just think maybe it's even more so now because I think that 
there isn't as much work for musicians, both in live gigs, touring gigs, and studio work. So, um, you know, you, you have to really be, you know, have your A game. And when you get an opportunity, you got to hit it out of the park. And I think if you get that one opportunity and you do a great job, somehow, some way, through networking and different things, another opportunity uh, happens. And I, I've seen it with a lot of guys where their career you know, it advances in steps. Sometimes they're frustrated. It's going slower than they'd like. But I think that if you're really strong at what you do, really diligent, professional, you know, good person, upbeat, you know, want to, you know, people are, you know, you want people to be happy when they see you or they think, oh, I could call this guy for a gig. They don't want to think about, oh, I got to call that guy. He's such a, all he does is complain. He's always late, you know. Right. If you have your act together all the way around, you know, the full 360, if you're the full package, you, you know, you're going to get your shot. And each time you hit it out of the park, you're going to stay on that plateau and then get another shot. And it, it's possible. Mm -hmm. It's just not easy. And, right. uh, of course. And it's not you – know, for most people, it's not quick. Right, right. I agree. Sorry, it's a long-winded answer. No, but, but um, I think that that's, that's what I want. I like, I like the uh... – I, I'd rather you go in deep rather than just skim over the top of it. So, so if people want to connect with you or learn more about you or your businesses and things like that, where's the best place to do that? Just go to Hudson Music. Uh, yeah, go to HudsonMusic.com, DrumGuru.com. Um, we have uh, Facebook and Twitter. You know, you can reach me uh, through any of those places. Um, and my email's Rob at HudsonMusic.com. Uh, I try to answer every email I get from guys. Um, it might take a, you know, a day or two, but you know, I'm unfortunately connected to the internet more than I probably should be. <laughs> and um, for everybody listening, please think twice about submitting a, uh, a, a book idea. Make sure it's something unique and something very good if you're going to do it, but, but don't just fire off your, your book ideas. And that's not, and that's not to say don't, Think about doing your own work of some type, but put yourself whenever you're if you're going to create something, whether it's music, whether it's, you know, you're writing a tune uh, with a band, you know, whether you're writing a, a drum book, um, put yourself on the other side and say, when I present this, what is unique about this? You know, somebody's got to see um, that it's got commercial appeal. If you're going the commercial route, you're not just going to give it away. Um, if you're expecting somebody to pay for it, you got to say, well, what's special? Is this special? Is this unique? Is it really strong? And, mm -hmm. um, you know, if it, if it meets those criteria, go for it, man. And, you know, I wish everybody the best. Um, that's I was fortunate. You know, I, I don't know how I did what I've done all these years. I kind of put one foot forward and uh, fell into a lot of holes. Um, I remember the, the saying, I forget if it was one of the football coaches says, it's not the fact that you fall down, it's how you pick yourself back up. Mm -hmm. And uh, believe me, you know, I've been there, done that, you know, many, many, many times over many years. And, you know, I've been blessed to be able to work with the people I've worked with and for. And, um, you know, no one handed it to me. You know, there was really no business so to speak of of what we were doing i mean you know paul and i you know really kind of created the instructional music um video world for drummers and uh you know it's been a great ride and you know i've been blessed with it it's been nothing but um you know great great memories 
and have got to meet some of the most amazing players and people. Um, so, it, you know, it's, it's been great. That's amazing. And I, I got to tell you, thank you for, for all the hard work that you've been putting in for all these years. And you've made some, some amazing, uh, amazing products and books and DVDs and things like that, that I've got a lot of knowledge from that. I've, like I said, I've watched over and over again and worked out of a lot of your books. So I appreciate everything that you've done and congratulations on all your success. And I'm excited to, to see what you're going to do in the future. Thank you. Well, I'm, I'm excited with the future too. You know, I'm trying to really pick carefully things that, that I want to work on. I've got some ideas that I'm excited about. Um, but one of the main things I want to just close with this, um, you know, when I was young and, you know, I'd be hanging out in bands playing and, you know, I always, you always hear the drummer jokes and I kind of said to myself, I want to set out on a path to try to, uh, really, I don't want to hear drummer jokes anymore. Right. Let's elevate, you know, to me, the drummer, the ironic thing is, you know, you hear all the drummer jokes, but to me, no band can sound good if they don't have a, a great drummer. You know, I agree. I'd hear a great drummer and a weak band than a great band and a weak drummer. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's nothing there. It's like trying to build a house, in, at, you know, and the foundation is in cement, you know, it's cardboard, you know, when yeah. it rains, you know, it's going to, it's not going to be a pretty picture. Yeah. So it, that was always ironic to me, and and I wanted to try to help get that message out to the to the world that that you know drummers are, are really don't don't think about doing anything musically in a band without a strong drummer. So on that note, you know, God bless all the drummers out there, and uh, keep your chin up and work hard. Yeah, man. Rob, thank you so much. I appreciate it. I know the listeners did as well, and uh, I'll be talking to you soon. Great. Thanks. All right. Good luck to everything. Thanks, Good luck to everybody out there. All right. Thank you. All right. We'll talk soon, Nick. All Take right. care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So there you have it, the one and only Rob Wallace. I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. I, I just met him recently, so it was great to actually sit down and, and have a conversation with Rob. And for all the links to everything that we talked about and how you can get in touch with Rob himself, visit drummersresource.com forward slash session one seven six. And if you haven't already, please, please, please leave me a rating and review on iTunes. What that does is it helps get the podcast up higher in the rankings. So it's something quick that you can do if you want to help, you know, help the cause and, and pay back for all this free content that you're getting. Uh, just go on there and leave a rating and review. Won't cost you a dime. It'll cost you about one minute of your time, which is valuable. So I appreciate it if you do it. And until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you have an awesome week and I'll be talking to you soon. Peace.